Philippians chapter 4, and as I said prior to this, we're going to jump ahead just a little bit. I think it'll work better in the, uh, at least in my mind it will, on the structure of things. So we're going to look at something that's found in chapter 4, and um, we'll begin reading. Let's see where we should start. Let's read in verse 19, or follow me as I read in verse 19 of Galatians chapter 4. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Now remember at this point when we find a word, uh, often a word, no matter what the root of the word is, that is if you go back to the Greek, um, it's not going to define the word for you as much as the context will. So there are certain words, even in English, you have to have the context. If I were to ask, for instance, this morning, uh, tell me what the word fast means. I could get a, multi, a variety of answers, couldn't I? You could say, oh, that means uh, we've seen you run, and you, it's not you fast. You don't, you don't, you're, not, you're not fast. We could say, oh, that's what I did last night, and this morning I broke my fast. So we call it breakfast, breakfast, you see. I broke my fast. Um, we could say, if you tie that line really good, really well, you have tied it fast. See, so it's the same word, but it context determines the meaning. And so it is with the word law. Tell me you desire to be under the law. That is the Mosaic law, of course, the law of Moses, the covenant of Sinai. Do you not hear what the law says? The law also speaks of the five books of Moses sometimes, doesn't it? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sometimes that's referred to as the law. So he wants to tell them now what the law says, and in doing that, he's going to go back to the first book of the law, which is the book of Genesis. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman or the slave woman was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory. Now, when he uses the word allegory, once again, we have to be careful. There is a form of interpretation of Scripture, which is called the allegorical method. And I would caution you from, uh, from uh, following that method or people who use that method. Because the allegorical method of Scripture is very subjective. It leads to whatever I think basically the passage may mean or something. It lacks the controls of a form of interpretation and it leads to a lot of erroneous doctrine. The allegorical form or method of looking at Scripture um, sees everything as not literal but sees things as all figurative and spiritual. It's not to deny that Scripture has figurative and literal and, 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 and symbolic things. 
But anyway, I don't want to confuse you except to say that's not what Paul is saying here. Basically, what he's telling us here is he's going to give us a historical story. But behind that historical story, there are spiritual principles that can be taught by seeing that story as a sort of a living parable, if you will. I'll explain that a bit more as we move along. So here's the historical story. Abraham had two children, two sons. One by the bondmaid, who was Hagar, and one by the free woman, who was Sarah. These things are an allegory. They present to us an allegory, for they represent to us two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, that's the law, which leads towards bondage, that's Hagar. This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And that answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free. That's the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Amen. Now, at a very basic level, the Jewish mind would have wrapped itself fairly easy around some of the principles that are here, because they certainly would not claim that, um, well, it, it is the basis of much of Islam, isn't it? That the chosen son of Abraham was not Isaac, but Ishmael, you see. That's one of the basic tenets, really, of the roots of Islam. Now, when you go back to it, they... Don't deny that Abraham had two sons, but the chosen son was not Isaac. It was Ishmael, you see. And the Jews would have certainly uh, opposed that particular belief, wouldn't they? So they would have readily understood when he said, we are the children, not of the bondwoman who's Hagar, Ishmael, but of Sarah, uh, the free woman, and so on. So it's a little bit um, involved, this passage, but I want to... I wanna, with the Lord's help, bring it out today for a couple of reasons. One, because it'll show us the beauty of Scripture. The more you get into the Bible, the more you begin to realize that this book has God's fingerprints all over it. <laughs> I mean, no one could have constructed a book like this. I'll never forget, I share a lot about my personal experience because... I know about that better than anybody else's, but I remember when I first got saved, and I was sitting in this little jail cell, and we had, and some of you won't even know what this is, now you've got to go back before the days of, of uh, MP3s, you've got to go back before the days of iPods, you've got to go back before the days of, you've got to go back before the days of cassettes almost, you know. Um, I had a transistor radio, all right, and a little transistor radio with an antenna, a lot of metal in the place where I was staying, kind of hard to get reception, but I'd turn it this way, I'd turn it that, and I'd pick up the station. I'd just gotten saved. I, didn't, I was dumb as a brick when it came to spiritual things, you know, and I'd listen, and I'd find this station. It was, there was this man who was teaching on the station, um, Scripture, 
It was the first time in my life that I ever remember hearing the story of Abraham and Isaac. And in a very simple way, he talked about this story, historical story, true story of a father taking his son up on a mountain and the son uh, becoming a, an offering there on the mountain and the parallels that were so evident even to me in my, you know, my early days of salvation. What a picture of Calvary. I mean, it was so clear. And I thought, is it possible that God could have recorded historical events in such a way that they present greater pictures at other levels? I mean, it blew my mind. You know, I know some of you were raised on that kind of a thing, and you heard it from the time you were a child, but to me, that was just, it was new, and I, I just I couldn't get over it. It was overwhelming. And the more I get into the Scripture, the more I realize the, the, the beauty of how the Word of God is constructed, not by accident, not for filler, God didn't just take stuff and say, you know, this book's a little fall, little short. I need to fluff it out a little bit, add some words. The word count's low, so I'll put this in there. Everything is placed in there with precision. And it's not only possible, but it's true that God has recorded historical events that give us uh, supportive, that support New Testament doctrine, don't contradict it, but enhance it. And, uh, you know, bring it out in a very powerful way. And I, I like that. So it's living parables in that sense, the beauty of Scripture. The other thing is that uh, this is a tough one for the Jews to swallow, you see, because what he's saying here, well, this was a slam on the Jews, wasn't it? That if you claim to be under that covenant of Sinai, well, guess what? You're the children of Ishmael. Oof. No wonder they sought and hounded Paul everywhere he went to say that kind of thing, that these Jews, if that's what they wanted, well, they were the children of Ishmael, not Isaac, because Isaac was the child of promise, you see, and so on. Very clear. And then um, uh, we'll look at the rest of it as we move along. So let's kind of get the characters in mind, because it is a little bit difficult to follow. Um, we have in Galatians chapter 4, this allegory that's presented to us, historical truth, historical events that... Uh, will illustrate to us certain parallels of truth as we find in the New Testament. So we have Hagar, who was the bondwoman. Remember, she was the slave out of Egypt. And we have Sarah, who was the free woman. We have Ishmael, who was the son of Hagar. And we have Isaac, who was the promised seed, the miracle child of Abraham and Sarah. Ishmael, of course, the child of Abram and uh, Hagar. We're told in Scripture that this represents Sinai and that covenant that was made at Mount Sinai, which is the law. Whereas Sarah, the free woman, uh, Zion, and all that is represented by the truth of Zion. Hagar and that covenant of the law, Jerusalem that now is, and the earthly people that were connected only with that, while Sarah, the free woman, Jerusalem, and heavenly the heavenly people connected with that. This was the Jewish people outside of Christ. This, the believers in Christ. So he puts it before them clearly. They, in a sense, would have to pick which group they belong to. You see, if they claim to belong to the law, well, guess what? You're in this column. But if you claim to be a believer in Christ by grace through faith, nothing added, 
uh, not by works, then this is the column you find yourself in. And these things are true of you. So to refresh our minds a little bit, let's um, go back. I haven't put them in their entirety here, but I've got the scriptures down basically that tell us the story of what took place. I referred to it a little bit earlier in Genesis chapter 16. You remember that after God had given Abram the promise of child, a long time uh, came along and, and Sarah had no children and she had this handmaid whose name was Hagar and she said to Abraham, now the Lord, it's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? The Lord hath restrained me from having children, so let's try this. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's God who's restrained me from having children, so go into my maid. Wait a minute, but if God has restrained you from, you know, so... Anyway, so um, she goes in, Abraham, and it's at this point that if James were here, which he's not, so I can talk about him, which I would even if he was here, James Clifford, that is, he reminded me uh, last night when his wife said something very complimentary about me that uh, we're not to listen to the voice of our wife. You see, you get trouble listening to the voice of your wife. I mean, many a preacher has preached a sermon out of this passage, hasn't he? You men, you'll get in trouble. You listen to the voice of your wife. You see, that's where the whole problem started. It says it clearly in Scripture, doesn't it? Abraham hearkened to the voice of Sarah, his wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And then when she saw that she had conceived, she got uppity, you see. She began to look down on Sarah, her mistress, because now, you know, it was becoming pretty evident, I'm with child, and you... Loser, you see, you're not. And, uh, of course, that didn't sit well with Sarah. And so Sarah said, listen, you know, got to do something about this problem. I can't take it with this woman anymore in the house. And uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. And Abraham finally said unto Sarah, listen, she's in your hand. You do with her as it pleases you. And so Sarah dealt very harshly with her, and she fled from before her face. And then an amazing thing happens. Because another principle that we find in Scripture that has served us well is what is often referred to as the law of first mention or the law of first reference. That is that the first time something is mentioned in Scripture, it often carries a certain significance that helps us to understand that concept, principle, or whatever it is that's their first mention. And so you now have the first mention of the angel of the Lord. And isn't it amazing that the angel of the Lord, which many of us would take to be a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, that the first time you have the angel of the Lord, he doesn't appear to the heir Abraham of the promise. He appears to a slave, a runaway slave in the wilderness. Amazing, isn't it? There was a song years ago, back then it was contemporary, Christian contemporary song, actually written by Michael Card, but popularized in the day by Amy Grant, called El Shaddai. You may, still a good song. I like the song. There's a line in that song that says, To the outcast on her knees, you are the God who really sees. And how true it was. To the outcast on her knees, thou God seest me, she said. She named the well, Bier Lahiroi, thou God seest me. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness. And he asked her two questions. 
And behind those two questions, though they were real questions, um, are the deeper questions of life by the angel of the Lord that he asked her. Where did you come from? Where are you going? Question of origin. Question of destiny. Two questions that nag at the heart of humanity, don't they? Two questions that science cannot answer. That technology cannot solve. The question of origin. The question of destiny. Where did you come from? Where are you going? And at that level, she says, I'm fleeing from the face of my mistress, Sarah. Now at this point, we're simply recounting the history. This is what happened, you see. And the angel of the Lord said, Return to your mistress. Submit yourself under her hands. And ultimately, that's what Hagar did. She went back, you see, to bear Ishmael. Go back to the tent. Live there in the tent. Stay in the tent. Go back to your mistress. Submit yourself under your hands. Under her hands. Now we fast forward, and there came the time when Sarah conceived, and she bare Abraham a son in his old age, understatement of Scripture, if ever there was one, uh, in that sense. You just stop and think about that for a minute. And at the set time of which God had spoken, now it came that at that time, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. And she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. The son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight. Because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. Oh now, and I would have to say to James, remember that other sermon? Now, the Lord says, Abraham, listen to your wife. (laughs) So there's times when we don't listen. But there's times we better listen, you see. And so the Lord says, Now, Abraham, in all that Sarah hath said unto thee, you hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. I will also, of the son of the bondwoman, make a nation, a great nation, because he is thy seed. And Abraham sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. By the way, an interesting question that arises out of this. We would often point, those who, I would say, interpret the scripture correctly, that... Um, Then we go back to the promises that God made to the nation of Israel and the land and everything else. No question but that those promises yet await complete fulfillment. And they will not be ultimately fulfilled until the Lord Jesus Christ comes ultimately to fulfill those things. But we have to guard our attitude, don't we? As to who, as believers in Christ, well, who are our enemies? It's quite different from asking the question politically. Who are our enemies? Or asking the question nationally, who are our enemies? (laughs) Quite different a question, isn't it? You see. I say that to say, um, one very interesting book I read recently, it's not a new book, I just happened to read it recently. If you get a chance to read it, it's a fascinating book. It's called um, Once an Arafat Man. Have you ever read that book or seen that book? Once an Arafat Man talks about a Palestinian man who became uh, a sniper at a very early age in the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization. 
eventually became a personal chauffeur for Yasser Arafat. Through a series of circumstances, came to the United States, married, and lo and behold, he got saved. The Lord saved him. Ultimately went back to witness to Arafat in Palestine. Very difficult for him to get back. Long story short, still over there, felt burdened to go back to the West Bank and witness to his own people. Imagine the persecution now that he experiences that. If you get a chance, a great read. Once an Arafat man. But he's got a fascinating appendix on the promises that were made not just to Abraham, but the promises that were made to Ishmael. Of God himself saying, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation, you see. Tremendous promises that were made. Matter of fact, one of the things that has blown my mind in Scripture more than once, and I'm going to turn to it now just to show you the kind of thing that sometimes we could skip over. And I think it's the kind of thing that got a guy like Isaiah, if he is the one that got sawn in two, um, got him cut in half, you see, for preaching this kind of thing. But turn with me back to the book of Isaiah, if you would, and uh, chapter 19. Matter of fact, I wrote an article... I wrote two articles. I wrote a lengthy one, and then I wrote a shorter one that was published in Milk and Honey, um, Isaiah 19. And I wrote it at the time of what was called the Arab Spring. You remember when the Arab Spring took place? And I've been looking at this passage for years, and I just felt at that time, you know what, I want to get into it a little further. So I wrote, a, I wrote an article titled, Blessed Be Egypt, My People. And... Uh, Steve Holstrasser published it, Milk and Honey, and I had a longer version that goes in a little bit more history. But basically, you look at the prophecies that are mentioned, beginning in verse 19. In that day, there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. It's amazing, isn't it? It shall be for a sign, for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors. He shall send them a Savior, and a great one. He shall deliver them. And then listen, and the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. Verse 21. This is what got Isaiah in trouble, I'm sure, one of the things. In that day shall Israel be the third, with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Amazing, isn't it? That God says here, and this is prophecy, prophetically, they're going to be a third, Egypt and Assyria, blessed be Egypt, my people, and blessed be Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. The three. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, what a prophecy. Can you imagine Isaiah preaching that to those Jewish people, the national patriotic spirit that they had in that day, who were under oppression at that time from Assyria and these other outward forces? And him saying, one day is God going to bless them and they're going to be on par, equal, a third. Whoa! It's an amazing prophecy how, how ultimately it will come to be fulfilled. But Egypt is an interesting country. You know that until the Islamization of Egypt, 
um, in the 600s that Egypt was a predominantly Christian nation. Egyptians are not Arabs. They're, They're not Arabs. They're Hamitic people. And so their roots are different. And even in recent times, as, as many uh, as 2 or 3% of the country that still claims some form of Christianity, a large percentage. So it's, it's interesting, isn't it? But I say all that to say that the promises that God made to Ishmael are tremendous promises that we, we have to grapple with in Scripture to understand completely. But those people, you see, they're not our enemies in that sense. You see, they're people who need Christ from a spiritual standpoint. Now, there's things that go on politically and there's things that go on nationally. I get it. I understand. But I'm telling you, there's a wave that's sweeping. I don't know if you've heard of what's happening in Iran behind the scenes. It's amazing what's taking place in Iran. There are people who are broadcasting into Iran over the Internet and through different means. And there are people being saved you know, it's an untold story almost of what's going on in Iran. It's amazing what's happening. It's, it's easy politically, isn't it, to think, they're our enemy. You see, we're the United States, they're Iran, they're this, they're that. And I get it, I get it, you know. It's folks that do bad things, they need to be wiped out. I get it. God has established the law and ministers of righteousness and power, of political powers and governmental authority. I get it. But at the same time, as a believer... When I look at that person, I've got to remember that's a person that Christ died for. They need Christ. It's a tough balance to keep, isn't it? I, at least it is for me. You may not find it so. But let's get back to our allegory now. So here's the basic history. And the basic history, which is undeniable, is this. There was a time when God told uh, Hagar, go back to the tent, stay in the tent. And then there came a time when God said, get her out of the tent and get rid of her. That's the out. That's the history of it. What's the allegory? You see, Hagar was the bondwoman, the slave woman who represented the covenant of the law, whereas Sarah, the free woman, represented the new covenant. Ishmael was a product of the flesh and of their own self-effort. That's why it says here, back in the book of Galatians in chapter 4, that Abraham had two sons. Verse 23 He who was of the bondwoman, what does it mean when he says was born after the flesh? It means that it was Abraham and Sarah's efforts of what they could do to achieve the promise of God. They wanted a right thing, didn't they? What was the right thing they wanted? They wanted to see God's promise fulfilled. And maybe their intentions thought, well, you know, God expects us to do our part and this is a way we can get the promise of God. But God said, you don't get the promise of God by the efforts of your own flesh. Ishmael was a product, in that sense, of the flesh. Ishmael, you could say, they did it. (laughs) But when it came to Isaac, (laughs) they didn't do it, did they? Not in that sense. Because it was supernatural. God had to do it. He was not a product of the flesh. He was a product of God's performance and of the promise, which is opposed, you see, to self-effort. Now the allegory becomes a little bit clearer. Two people who represent two totally different principles. What was produced by an effort of the flesh? Ishmael. What was produced by the promise of God and God doing it? 
And really, you know, I tell young people sometimes, I say, if you ever get to go to college and uh, you get offered to take a course in uh, comparative religion or something like that, save your money. I can help you clip the course. I can give it to you in like 30 seconds or less, and it won't cost you anything, you see. Because it's very simple, really. I can reduce it down to even just a few words. All the religions of the world do. <laughs> That's it. Close the book. <laughs> Except for one thing. Biblical Christianity says, done. <laughs> and that's it, really, isn't it? I mean, you can study all the intricacies of it and all the rest of it, but when you boil it all down, it all says, do what you have to do, what you have to do. And biblical Christianity says, it's what Christ has done. It's what God has done. And you enter into what He has done. It's not your performance. You have to be dependent on what someone else did, what Christ has done. And that's the difference, isn't it? You see? And so, you see how the law had to do with self-effort. Sinai, the bondage of the law, which those people who were seeking to be under it were still under. But Zion on the other side, the freedom of grace. Jerusalem at that time, earthly Jerusalem in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, freedom like their mother. You see, the source, the mother, the source of birth, the formation of character, the Jerusalem above, which is free, that's the mother of us all. That's the source of our birth. That's where our character is formed. It's different from the earthly that's in bondage. And of course, the Jewish people, many of them in slavery under the law, believers in Christ, freeborn, Sons, heirs, the inheritance, not by the law or the keeping of the law. All of that in a story, a couple of stories, historical events recorded in Scripture. And yet look what they come to represent. Look how he draws upon those things to represent to us the beauty of what it is that Christ has done. And you see... Once more in Scripture, you'll get it at least three times in here. In our last passage, I said it couldn't be clearer, could it? Who is the schoolmaster? The law. You are no longer under the schoolmaster. You're no longer under the law. Now we come to this passage in, in Galatians chapter 4. And Abraham is specifically told in verse 30, Cast out the bondwoman and her son. And the bondwoman and her son, who do they represent? Sinai, the covenant of the law. Clearly told us here in Scripture, right? There was a time when those things were to exist. For the hundreds and thousands of years even that the law existed, it had a purpose. But there came a time when that purpose was fulfilled and God said, get her out of the tent. You're not under the law anymore. Its purpose is over. It has run its terminus. It's done. When Christ died on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent in two, God tearing it from the top to the bottom, opening up that new way to give us, as Greg reminded us, boldness, or as I like to, to say it, confidence to come before God. You see, it's as you carefully remind us, it's not arrogance in that sense. 
It's confidence now to stand before God. You could never have that under the law. You can never have that under a system of works. One of the problems with religion that's based on works, it's very root, it's very hard. Because it's based on my performance, I never know if I've done enough. I never know if I fulfilled it or if there's something left. And if I die like that, I have no assurance. Whereas when it's based upon what Christ has done, or when He said it's finished, I enter into the, the fullness of the satisfaction of that work that Christ has done. It is finished, and we can sing it as well. It's well with my soul, because Christ has died, you see. So it's a wonderful thing. Now actually, he's going to conclude, not at the end of chapter 4, but very powerful again to see there, we're not children of the bondwoman. Who's the bondwoman? The law, Sinai, that covenant, done. We're children of the free. Therefore, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And don't become entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What's the yoke of bondage? He's just told us, isn't he? The law. You see, in chapter 5 he says it. And so, once again, he's going to repeat something in a different way now. But he said it before. If righteousness could have come by the law, Christ died needlessly and in vain. And I say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now again, not talking about a medical procedure here. He's talking about the entering into that ritual and rite uh, of the Jewish child uh, when they were eight days old and so on, as far as trying to get into the covenant and blessings of God that way. Let me put it this way. If a ritual could merit God's favor, then Christ is sidelined. You see? Whether it's circumcision whether it's baptism, no matter what it is, if somehow that ritual or ceremony or religious rite could gain merit or God's favor, Christ is sidelined. Christ has become of no profit to you. Besides that, I testify again, as I've said before, you enter into that circumcision that way, and you're a debtor to do the whole law. And so let me tell you again, Christ has become of no effect unto you, chapter 5, verse 4, whosoever you are attempting to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. To trust in anything else or in any other system is to cut yourself off from everything that's in Christ. Now to me, he has made his argument powerfully. He has made his argument clearly, you see which again is the wonder and part of the beauty of this book of Galatians. And so, may the Lord help us to get a hold of these things. And, and we've been looking at it a bit, if I may say, not so much just on the negative side, but to see the, the ill effect of those who would seek to gain salvation by their own efforts, or by keeping the law, or religious rituals, or ceremonies, or any of that, but what we're going to look at in our next time together, Lord willing, tomorrow, is, uh, is, is a little bit more on the positive side. What is God's method then with us if it's not law? What is it? And how does it work in our practical, everyday experience? Our Father, we thank you again 
for the beauty of Scripture. The way this book is composed and put together, we realize you take a book written by over 40 people over uh, 1,500 years, and many of them never saw one another or knew one another, and, and you, you take all those individual books and put them all together, and they all end up saying the same thing. You just have to figure somebody was behind it. Somebody was telling them what to write, or they never could have said all the same thing and not contradicted one another. They never could have told the same story. So it's a great encouragement to us as believers to have this confidence that this book is indeed the Word of God. That if you were to speak from heaven today, you wouldn't say anything that hasn't already been said in the Scriptures. So we have your mind communicated to us. And that blows our mind to think that as we get into this book, we're getting into the mind of God revealed to us on the pages of the Word of God. Help us to get into it, Lord, and dive deep into the truth of the Scripture. And so uh, we, we give you thanks again for this portion of the Word of God. And we thank you, too, for the food that we're about to receive. We ask your blessing upon it in our time together. Thank you for all who've had a part in any kind of way uh, to help this day come together to be a good day for us. And we give you thanks again in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I think John's going to give some announcements.